The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. This is mini-episode 79.5. These are the episodes where we get into all the nitty-gritty details we didn't have time for on the main episode, which was a great conversation with Chris Bailey. You just never know about people's experiences, how they got into comics, what they've been reading, so very fun over there. The thing that I wanted to give you a heads up on, though, if you haven't been over to our YouTube channel lately, we finally have posted the 2023 Superhero fantasy draft video where you will get to hear the conversation that we had while people were making their picks just a lot of the jokes you know that were flying back and forth about certain 90s characters and creators it was just a good time had by all so certainly recommend that you go check that out so anytime that you have a moment go on over there because it is uh 90 minutes but it's worth it at least i want it to be worth it i spent a lot of time editing that thing so uh check it out but let's get this episode started what do you say let's check out Cap's Kooky Contests. So our first contest here, DC Comics presents a Creative Ring Green Lantern Art Contest, tells us, The folks at DC Comics have said that since Kyle Rayner, the new Green Lantern, is a graphic designer, he will never use his ring the same way twice. Well, that's a pretty tall order to fill, and we think DC could use some help. Namely, yours! Grand prize. One greenie will win a Green Lantern statue sculpted by William Paquette, a page of original artwork by Daryl Banks from Green Lantern number 7, a copy of Green Lantern Sentinel Number 1, signed by Ron Mars and Paul Pelletier, and a Green Lantern A New Dawn trade paperback signed by Mars and Banks. First prize, 20 almost as lucky Kylophiles will win a copy of Green Lantern Sentinel Number 1, signed by Ron Mars and Paul Pelletier, and a Green Lantern A New Dawn trade paperback signed by Mars and Daryl Banks. How do you win this loot? We want you to rack your brains and draw Green Lantern using his ring in a way never before seen to defeat his archenemy, Dr. Light. Your entries will be judged by GL editor Kevin Dooley, so no slacking. The entry with the most creative, innovative, and cool art will win the Keen Green Gene prizes above. Simple enough, right? Well, let's check out the legal by Lantern Light. Something I noticed here is we kind of have the traditional start uh, to the joke, the lead-in, and it says here, contest is open to anyone except the place of Wizard Entertainment. And you'll recall in all previous contests, it was Wizard press, so the official wizard entity name had changed. So, employees of Wizard Entertainment, DC Comics, their immediate families, and the super intelligent chimpanzees seeking to divest us of our pants. <laughs> Is that really what a super intelligent chimpanzee would spend its time doing? Trying to convince humans to go around pantsless? I don't know. Next one here... Wizard Entertainment is not responsible for lost, later misdirected, or mutilated entries. Now, we command you, read the fine print, and be hypnotized. Hypnotized. Is there somebody in pop culture who says it that way? I don't know. Very interesting. All right, on to the next contest. You might say this one is groovy because gt interactive software corporation presents the duke nukem trivia contest oh man so what do you do just answer the three duke trivia questions from either the nintendo 64 list or the playstation list below now duke nukem right i remember how many of my friends had this game most of them on the pc not the console version uh so it's interesting that we're talking about the home console versions here but uh i it was a game i never got into because i was like Wolfenstein and Doom like I played plenty of that but once you just had you know Duke Nukem stealing that concept and then taking all the catchphrases from different movies I was like mm, I don't know maybe this one isn't for me but he was definitely an icon of the era so the first the N64 questions what is the name of the weapon store in level 2 then what does the screen say when you release a babe from bondage and then finally how many multiplayer modes exist in Duke Nukem 64 now as for the PlayStation questions. In Nightmare Zone, what are the pig cops wearing? In Duke Fiction, what's on the movie poster instead of Uma Thurman? And in Alien Rendezvous,
rendezvous. What's at the end of the level? Very interesting. Okay, now the grand prize. The lucky winner gets a Nintendo 64 or PlayStation game system, a Duke Nukem 3D video game for the N64 or PlayStation, a Duke Nukem action figure, and a Duke Nukem t-shirt. First prize, each first prize winner gets an N64 PlayStation Duke Nukem 3D video game, a Duke Nukem action figure, and a Duke Nukem t-shirt. Wow, so those are some pretty sweet prizes, especially in this era when those were the hot systems. Alright, let's check out the lawyer stuff. Contest open to anyone except employees of Wizard Entertainment, GT Interactive Software Corporation, and their immediate families. And no joke. Come on. I mean, he's all about the jokes and he won't let Wizard make a joke here? That's ridiculous. Because, I mean, you gotta think these guys have a sense of humor with all the nonsense they're putting into the game. Lame. Let's get into our last contest here, which is... Jimmy Big Love Palmiotti and Amanda Hot Pants Connor present the Double Date with Us contest. Have you always wondered what the cutest couple in comics does when it's not drawing or inking your favorite titles? Well, we have. And since no one will go out with us magazine people, we're sending you to get the scoop. And in the romantic spirit of Valentine's Day, you're not gonna go alone. We're gonna fix up one lonely male and one lovely female and send you out for a fun-filled love start night on the town with comic book artist Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor. Just don't try hitting on Amanda. You never know what Jimmy'll do. Wow. As a premise for a contest, a blind date between two winners. Hmm. I don't know how that's gonna play out, but it definitely sounds like a game show premise. Alright, prizes. Grand prize? One male winner and one female winner will go on an all-expenses-paid double date with artists Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor in the Big Apple. You'll feast on some fine grub, then take a romantic carriage ride around New York Central Park. Plus, you'll receive a page of original art Jimmy and Amanda worked on together. Cupid be jealous. First prize, ten almost as lucky lovelorn lads and lasses will receive two signed comics Jimmy and Amanda worked on together. Ah, What you do? Write a personal classified ad for your favorite superhero from his or her perspective. Don't tell us you're looking to meet someone just like Psylocke or Gambit. We want to know what type of person she or he is looking for. You write it and send it in. We'll choose the most original and creative as the winners and send them off on their double dates. And it does say here, this contest is sponsored by Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Cotter, our favorite little schmoopies. <laughs> Ah, oh, just getting all cutesy. All right, let's check out our legal of love here, okay? Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press. See, now it went to Wizard Press. What's going on here? Jimmy Palmiotti, Amanda Connor, their immediate families, and any of the employees of Opener's Bar and Grill. You stink of beer and cheesy poofs. Do you guys remember Opener's Bar and Grill? We reported on that on their big night where they were celebrating all their comic book murals and everything. They had a costume contest and Mark Wade and, you know, yeah, Jimmy Palmiotti. Miyadi, Jokesada, everybody was over there partying. I'm assuming Jim McLaughlin got to hang out with them quite a bit as well. All right, next one here. Odds of winning will be determined by the number of valid entries received prior to the closing date of the contest. Heed these words. A bird in the hand is worth poop in your palm. <laughs> oh, gotta get a poop joke in. Well, that does it for the contest news, but let's check out what Wizard was imagining in their minds for the silver screen. Yeah, it's time for a casting call. All right, well, we are here ready for another casting call. That's right. This is actually a holdover from issue 78. Uh, we had tried to get, you know, our longtime Green Lantern fan and friend Stephen Sapelis in on this. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, busy, busy summer for him. And so luckily we have another one of our great listeners, a recent participant in our superhero fantasy draft and a fine, fine patron. Uh, we are happy to have Lee with us. Lee, how's it going? It's going great. How are you doing? 
Excellent. Now, the reason you came to mind for me was that, you know, on our Patreon, actually, your avatar is Kyle Rayner. And yep. so what is your relationship with the 90s Green Lantern comics? Well, the 90s Green Lantern comics were really what started me collecting comics. Like, I obviously love Batman 89. I love Batman the Animated Series. I like, And I did have random comics here and there. But the first book was Green Lantern 78 uh, that got me. I bought it at a bookstore. And again, another reason newsstands are so important, why I wish that that was still a big part of the way comics went to kids and stuff, because that's the thing that got me to then hunt down a comic book shop, because I was like, oh, this is a perfect jumping on point kind of book. I could tell that right away. I was like, oh, this is Ron Mars and Daryl Banks are trying to do a jump on, jumping on point right here. But I still wanted to know all of the st backstory. So then I went and I found the local comic book shop and they had all the, the, I didn't even know what a back issue bin was. So then I just started buying all the Green Lantern and then that got me buying, you know, Justice League and all the other stuff. That's awesome. Wow. So that's perfect. Well, I, I'm glad we have you along here because I'm sure there are a few of these characters that I've heard of, but I don't know that well because I've only read a handful of the Kyle Rayner era comics for the podcast. I wasn't reading it at the time. You know, I mentioned previously on an episode recently that just there was no one that ever pointed me to Kyle Rayner that said, you should check this out. I was just like, oh, there's a new Green Lantern. Oh, he's sticking around. Oh, okay. He's still here. Now he's Ion. Okay. You know, it was just interesting <laughs> to see how that that all played out but let's get into this here because yeah wizard is talking about casting a green lantern kyle rayner era movie and the kickoff here for who they wanted to play kyle rayner this is fun for me where i was just like i i don't know but they want thomas gibson who they reference being from chicago hope but i know best from dharma and greg he's greg from Dharma and Greg. Yeah, that's all I know him as too. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about this? Like when you were casting a Kyle Rayner in your mind, who was coming to the forefront? Well, I have to admit, I kind of started with the female leads and because they were all such like, you know, leading ladies, all of them. And I was just like, okay, so the guy who takes this role has to be able to measure up to them. So I was like, there's no way a sitcom actor from the 90s that I barely know from Dharma and Greg is matching up with who I have in mind for like Donna Trump and all that. So I definitely went with, I thought, someone who looked uh, similarly like Kyle Rayner, but also was an up-and-coming actor who would then go on later on to win like Oscars and all this other stuff. And I thought Jarrett Leto, even though he got really different obviously like after fight club and all those movies but in the 90s he was still like my so-called life i think or something like that like he was on a show but he was also going to be in like urban legend and movies like i think that hollywood obviously saw that he was a future star of some kind and at that time he still had more of like almost like the boy next door but also a good looking guy and also more physical like where obviously like in fight club he's a physical guy and I couldn't imagine Dharma and Greg guy being anything like a superhero. No, and that's fascinating. Yeah, these days, obviously, you know, we're thinking Morbius. We're thinking the Joker from Suicide Squad when we think mm -hmm. Jared Leto. But yeah, back then, he was just, you know, kind of a, a straight-laced actor, not a character actor 100% yep. yet. Now, what is interesting, you said no sitcom actors, because that's what came to mind for me initially, <laughs> but not this guy. Because I always think of Kyle Rayner having the sense of humor, right? Mm -hmm. And so this Greg fella never had a sense of humor. That was the point. He was straight-laced. Dharma's this weirdo, you know, a kind yeah. of wacky character. But so I initially, in my mind, I went, you know... Matt LeBlanc from Friends, if yeah. he had borrowed Matthew Perry's attitude and you combine mm -hmm. the two of them and, you know, he had just been in Lost in Space, like, uh, you know, everything was coming up for him in movies doing Ed. <laughs> Chimpanzee. <laughs> well, you know what? Yeah. But the like Friends is, I feel like one of those special shows, like where in terms of like, I was never, I never watched a ton of it, but I you, that's what, like Seinfeld or any of those, like, they're like, there are very few Mount Rushmore, you know, sitcoms and the actors that come out of there are a little bit different than the guy who plays Greg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, the only other person, if they were going to go slightly younger, more towards the Jared Leto age, and they're really looking for somebody who's like, oh, they have to grow into the role. Mm -hmm. I was thinking Scott Wolf from Party of Five. Oh, yeah. You know, I think he, he's, he's only done the, the Double Dragon movie at this point. Mm -hmm. Like, but he kind of had the impetuousness he could play at, and you need that as Kyle's going through his journey. So I don't know. We'll we'll see. We'll see uh, <laughs> what everybody else thinks as we put this out to the world. But you said <laughs> you were already thinking about Donna Troy. So who came to mind initially for you? Here they want future Witchblade Yancey Butler, which I thought was fascinating. She hadn't been cast as Witchblade yet, and they still said, Oh, yeah, this Yancey Butler. Butler would be great. 
which I didn't think was bad, but I thought to myself, this is a Warner Brothers production in the 90s. They have a huge budget to use here. So I went very all-star cast on this one. So for Donna Troy, because it has to be basically a young Wonder Woman in a lot of ways, I went Jennifer Connelly in that era. So I thought that that was a, a slam dunk pick for that character. I, yeah, I can't argue with that. That would be awesome. She's always cool whenever <laughs> she shows up. And now, very funny, their choice for Gambit, you know, the, the last guardian here. Uh, <laughs> They wanted Ray Walston. Now, if you guys can't picture Ray Walston, he was the old guy in every 80s movie, like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But they were saying specifically in the 60s, he was with actually future Hulk, uh, Bill Bixby, on My Favorite Martian. He was the, the titular Martian. So he just he does have that kind of otherworldly little shriveled guy look. So <laughs> No, like in terms of a look? A hundred percent. I agree with it. I don't know if I want, again, like if we're going all-star cast for a Warner Brothers production, I don't know if I'm picking him for the, the role, but he did. When I saw the picture, I thought, yeah, that that does uh, resemble. Yeah. Uh, did you have an alternate take on that one at all? Yeah, I put um, Malcolm McDowell, actually, because I thought that he could have sort of a... He has the chops, like in terms of obviously Clockwork Orange. And then actually, I really liked him. I don't know if you ever saw Mozart in the Jungle on Amazon, but he plays like an older conductor on that. And he but he but he also has sort of a, a worldliness to him, but a bitterness and but also a sense of humor. And Ganthet is kind of like all those things. He's obviously incredibly wise. He's seen it all. And you want somebody that but also he was always a little different than the rest of them. So he kind of I thought that uh, someone like Malcolm McDowell could bring sort of that a uh, little bit of edge and a little bit of offness or whatever you want to refer to it as. But yeah. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. He'd have that little bit of quirkiness that would just set him apart. Now, you got to fill me in, in the comics, who is Radu Stanku? <laughs> so he is the owner of the coffee shop, but also uh, that is in like, you know, a setting for the comic book at the time. But also I believe that the building that the coffee shop is in is the apartment building for Kyle Rayner. So he pays his rent to Radu and he picks up coffee all the time and passes him by and all that stuff when he's dropping off the check or, you know, whatever. So that's, uh, I don't remember him having a ton of dimension as a character, but he was a friendly guy who would occasionally, I think kind of give a little bit more of, I think because the character moved from LA to New York, they wanted to have a couple characters that kind of could speak to New York and kind of give him the lowdown on certain things, that kind of thing. Okay, because here they're going full on looks like they often did with this. <laughs> and they're picking G. Gordon Liddy. If you guys don't remember <laughs> G. Gordon Liddy, he was involved like with Nixon's Watergate conspiracy. Yeah. Then in the this era, like 80s and 90s, he was kind of on the radio a lot. He was just kind of like a pundit that people would talk mm -hmm. to, and he would have he had his own like talk show and stuff like that. So this is 100% just this guy has a mustache. We need a guy with a mustache. So can you think of, you know, some type of friendly, because it seems like he's more of a friendly character. I don't know if yeah. he, that he gives off the friendly vibe. So, well, there are two movies that this guy was in in the 90s that I saw and I really liked one of them. The other one I don't remember as well, but there was the movie Shine with Jeffrey Rush. And then there was a movie called The Game with Michael Douglas. And there's a guy in that that's more of a, I think he was actually nominated for an Oscar for Shine, but his name is Armin Mueller-Stahl. And he's a German actor, so he's not Romanian, which is the character Radu, but at least he's European and he's an actual European actor. And he has, you know, the mustache and he's balding. And he was very like friendly and warm actually in The Game. He's not in a lot of it, but he's has that, and he's probably in his like 50s or 60s in the 90s. And I think he would have probably done the character justice for the two minutes. He'd probably be in the movie. So actually, he'd be way overqualified. <laughs> yeah, well, what's funny is I would think like if they actually made this movie, they would probably like maybe even adjust the character slightly and not go with the origin. Because I don't know, when I looked at him, I was thinking, you know, he was doing acting like in the 80s, Dick Buttkiss, like this former <laughs> yeah. football player. And he was on all these sitcoms. And I was just like, he would be just like that lovable guy because he had played that. I think it was on My Two Dads. He was kind of yeah. like the guy who owned a restaurant thing. So I'm just like, hey. And especially if you went with like the Mont LeBlanc Green Lantern, I think you'd want to have definitely more comic relief in that role yeah 100 now for john stewart who is a character that at this time was a fan favorite but i mean really jumped up you know after the justice league cartoon and everything came out like people love john stewart and so for for that you know actor at this time they're looking at joe morton from terminator 2 he's 
fine, but I don't know if he has like the stoic nature that I yeah. associate with John Stewart. It's kind of interesting because immediately came to mind for me was Lawrence Fishburne. Because, That's a good one. Yeah, I feel like in this story, I don't know if John Stewart's around a lot, just based on the, some of the casting that we see in a little bit, who the villain is probably going to be in this story. So mm. I was thinking like, you'd have him come in, he'd be like super serious that he probably gets killed at some point. So Lawrence mm-hmm. Fishburne would make an impact in just a couple minutes on screen. But who were you thinking? No, that's an excellent one. And I wish I'd actually thought of it. I mean, I was going, I was thinking to myself, this guy's way too big for this movie, but maybe you do like a spinoff movie and then it makes a lot more sense. I would do Denzel Washington because in Courage Under Fire, he essentially is Jon Stewart. Like if you're doing the Marine, ex-Marine thing and all that, I know he becomes an architect or he was an architect and all that. But honestly, like Denzel Washington, you believe he can do whatever role you want him to be. Like he'll be great. And But I thought he his look and he would command the screen. And also like when we get to Hal Jordan, I think he'll be, a, he would be a star power would be big enough to kind of, you know, take on who I think would be a good Hal Jordan. Yeah, I th- I think you're right. I mean, Denzel would be 100%, but at the same time, it's like, it's got to be his movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's why I would be like, Warner Brothers would have to say, we're going to do this whole thing with you as well. And maybe yeah. even you become Green Lantern. Anyway. Now, for Sentinel at this time, the Golden Age Green Lantern, Alan mm-hmm. Scott. This was really an interesting choice. I don't think Seventh Heaven had launched <laughs> on the WB yet, but he's from the Seventh Heaven show and, of course, Star Trek, the motion picture. Stephen Collins. What do you think about that he doesn't look old enough to play alan scott does he well no he doesn't but alan scott was a weird character at that time especially because i think they had done some like aging thing with him where it's like him and jay garrick hadn't quite aged like all the other heroes because of some i forget what the continuity explanation was but it kind of makes sense but also this is a weird casting choice just because man he became so controversial later on i mean so it was like when i saw that i was like oh no Did you have somebody in mind that like screams Alan Scott to you like seasoned hero? Yeah, he was one of the tougher ones because he's blonde and blonde act. Like I just couldn't find like I was like trying to think of somebody. But I thought from Batman Begins, the way Rucker Hauer looks in Batman Begins, because the other side of Alan Scott is that he's also like a very wealthy guy who owns like a company in Gotham. I think he owns like a broadcasting company or something. So he's always in like suits and ties and he's, you know, perfectly quaffed and all that stuff, except when he's obviously being Green Lantern. But I thought, you know, Rucker Hauer in that movie has a presence. And if you play, you know, he can play nice guy occasionally, even though I think of him more as a hardened uh, character actor. That's interesting. See, I I was going like, okay, let's bring in an actor from a different era who would have played you know green lantern in a movie in the 60s or something like Mm -hmm. that so i was like i was thinking somebody like probably steve mcqueen who is just like you know this kind of classic hero guy from that time and bring him in and he can just be kind of straight laced and like fatherly in a way to kyle and and go with that that's kind of going to mirror my my pick for a later character as well but i love that pick i I think the only reason i i looked at steve mcqueen and i thought oh because i thought blonde actor all that and the, the only other guy i thought of that was similar to that was paul newman I thought that there was a little bit of a, you know, Paul Newman vibe. You know, he could definitely play the older Green Lantern. A hundred percent. Those two, either or, I felt Mm -hmm. like that was going through my mind. Now for Jade, though, they're trying to go of the moment. They're trying Mm -hmm. to get, you know, a young female actor who's really going to get kids to come out to the movie, you know, and that is... Party of Five co-star with Scott Wolf. So maybe they have yeah. Beth Campbell. She's great. In fact, she's still, she's like done so well for so many years with all the screen films. She looks great. She still looks pretty much the same, I feel like, as she did in like uh, back in the 90s. She was actually a good pick, but I, I went with Kate Beckinsale. I thought she would have been a really good Jade. But I, either one, that was more just to be different. When I saw the Nev Campbell one, I was like, oh, that's good. That's actually a really good casting choice for the time. Yeah, only because I haven't read a ton of stories with Jade in them. The question yeah. I would have is I would probably lean towards Kate Beckinsale because she tends to be slightly more, I don't want to say aloof, but she's mm-hmm. not as like emotional as Nev Campbell. Like, especially when you think about like the Underworld films, you know, she could play kind of like serious. I'm a hero. I'm going after this thing, but I'm not like your best friend necessarily, you know? So. Yeah. And whenever Kyle tried to play games with her in terms of like, am I with you or not with you kind of thing, she was much more of a character that said like, look, you either need to give me a straight answer or I'm out of here. She was not, yeah. She, and I think Kate Beckinsale's good at kind of providing that sort of like, I'm, I am I don't care if you want to date or not, but I'm just, you know, give me an answer or I'm getting out of here. All right, uh, next one here, the ill-fated, as they say, Alex is a girlfriend yes. who had the infamous uh, refrigerator experience. They yeah. wanted 
Lapita Wilson from the TV <laughs> show La Femme Nikita, which is wild. And I just yeah. shows that I remember being promoted a lot on the USA Network. I never watched it, but you have to have a pick here. I'm sure, you know, you're thinking of somebody who would play Alex uh, the best. Who would that be? Yeah, it was tough, but I actually went with uh, Charlize Theron. I thought that she'd be good because she was supposed, to, Alex was supposed to be love of his life, beautiful, all this thing, and huge tragedy. And I just thought that also, well, at that time, it wouldn't have been super shocking. Like, well, it would have been shocking for different reasons. But I mean, like, if today you got rid of Charlize Theron from a movie like 20 minutes in, people would be like, what just happened? Then it would have been like, I don't, you know, it's just uh, she was definitely a star on the rise. I don't know how they would have this whole aspect of the story in this movie today. They would definitely write that out because they're not going to use the whole like she's basically completely ill thought out version of Uncle Ben, but in a much more misogynistic. It's just no, it's don't do it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like <laughs> she would be the girlfriend and she wouldn't die. That's just what it would be. Yeah, they wouldn't make yeah. a reference to it. They would just like, nope, that's that's his girlfriend in this movie. OK, uh, yeah. now. This is the character that I feel this has to be what they're going for, for the villain of the film, for the conflict of the film, because they want Parallax. They want Hal Jordan in this movie. And I think that's a fantastic setup is here's this young guy who's taken over and then you don't even have to see it. But they, you know, in a flashback, there's the, the, you know, Ganthet is explaining what Hal Jordan just did to the core and everything else. You know, and so like maybe, you know, Kyle meets these people that Hal is still hopping around, killing everybody and that the Green Lanterns he does meet die and then now he's Mm -hmm. like whoa okay this is serious i gotta go after it so here they wanted richard dean anderson macgyver (laughs) to play hal jordan now you know beyond macgyver he did stargate you know that was a huge hit and everything like that but what do you think does richard dean anderson have the gravitas uh, to play this era of hal jordan definitely not the big bad should be someone that you can see as a hero like as big as christopher reeve or something like that and you're like shocked when the turn happens if that happens in the film or when you know you're kind of charmed by the character because Cal Jordan was always charming so like when it turns on you uh you're just like oh man and also Jared Leto needs to have a big confrontation with this character and has to handle it and it's yeah but I'm actually curious before I give my because Hal Jordan's such a big character and you don't have to like be a Kyle Rayner fan so you have to have an idea of who you would want Hal Jordan to be so as I thought about it I was like I don't want a cackling villain I don't want somebody who exudes evil like you said from the first time you see him on screen Mm -hmm. and who came to me was Bill Paxton he'd be good yeah like the the idea behind him because he'd already played kind of like the roguish Han Solo type space balls right and then he's the president <laughs> yeah. independence day and he's done, he's done a whole bunch of other stuff but I, but i just see him as a character who would he's committed to the idea of what he has to do he's obsessed mm-hmm. but he's not crazy about it you know he's just like yeah. look kid you're in the way i gotta take care of this you know and i just i feel like he could be cold like just like scary in that way not in like a maniacal way but who did you have in mind i'm actually going to ask you to break the tie because i am conflicted so the first guy that came to mind was Kevin Costner, actually, because, you know, I, I like the idea of a baby boomer actor and then the Gen X actor in Leto and like the combinate, you know, the generational conflict. And then the other one was Dennis Quaid because of things like the right stuff. And then he was also in like frequency. So he's played the firefight. Like there's definitely I always think of Hal's the space cop. So somebody that can be that the pilot and all that stuff. But Kevin Costner, I kind of thought in that era would have been like everyone that went into that theater would just be like, I love Kevin Costner. He's one of the biggest movie stars in the world and then the idea of him being pushed over the brink and then turning evil but I don't know if I can think of too many roles where he would like I Quaid I think I actually can see going a little mad a little more easily yeah, I think I'm with you on Quaid just because yeah he's got that little glint he's got that yeah. little bit of edge to him that's slightly more than Costner even though like you say it'd be a huge surprise but but yeah. I, I I like the idea of Dennis Quaid because he can play both elements so you'd think okay on your side and then yeah he flips yeah. the switch you're like oh, okay look out you know so I, yeah, yeah exactly. Dennis Quaid as hell Jordan would be really cool now they need actual supervillains. probably he'd have to fight a few before you know Hal gets into the picture all the way so he's 
talk about Dr. Light, uh, who we know, you know becomes infamous and <laughs> just a few later yeah. identity crisis and other stuff. But they want Jeremy Northam from mm-hmm. The Net. And I was just like, <laughs> The Net, you know, such a 90s film, Sandra Bullock, all that. But I don't know, like, I don't have strong feelings about a Dr. Light. And uh, but seeing this guy, I'm like, I remember him in movies and I think he could give off a creepy vibe for sure. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I For Dr. Light, I was like, I don't have huge opinions on this so i'm gonna kind of actually just kind of go off the that jeremy northam look and so there were actually two people that came to mind i think i decided on richard e grant who was if you're not familiar with him he's like in gosford park he was in uh, he actually was just in a really great movie called can you ever forgive me which i think he was nominated for an oscar for that and then the other one was actually david duchovny because i just thought that he also had that look but he was kind of he could do movies by this point and people loved him obviously from the x-files and all that stuff so i think if you wanted to go down the more like classical actor route you go with richard e grant and if you want to go with more of just like american kind of superstar at that time just for tv and maybe a little bit of movies you'd go with david duchovny but, i feel like yeah, would you go? Yeah. in that moment would be too much of a distraction also he tends to lead a little bit more towards humor in his performances <laughs> however wry so looking up richard e grant i'm like oh yeah like i could see this yeah. guy dr anything evil yeah. that would be him like <laughs> yes <laughs> got it. exactly now, at this time, he had just come off of Batman and Robin playing a, a campy villain. And I don't know why they, again, if we're saying we, we don't want Alex to die, Major Force doesn't need to be in this movie, probably. But they want Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> yeah. to play Major Force. He's mm-hmm. a big, bulky, buff dude. Uh, did you have an alternate take on that if he was just like a throwaway villain, one of the first he has to fight? Yeah, I thought, this is where I will say I kind of backed off my more like, oh, we have an endless budget and we can't afford anyone. Let's go with an all-star cast. I went, let's go. Wizard 1998, who would they actually go with other than Arnold Schwarzenegger? And I went with Dolph Lundgren because I thought that, you know, you put him and actually I thought he was a little less distracting than Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good a good take definitely because yeah, it's like, you know, he's the poor man's Arnold. He's doing the B-level, you know, action movies and so Major Force feels like the name of a Dolph Lundgren film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, last one here. These always end with a whimper. That's that's the problem with the casting calls because they get like more and more obscure characters. Who the heck is Fatality? So Fatality, I, as I recall, it's been a long time since I read comics with her, but I do own them and I did read them at one point, but I was probably 13 years old. Uh, she was some sort of like bounty huntress kind of thing. And so she basically, I think I recall, Kyle just goes out to like a nightclub. He sees her there. She's attractive. He starts to dance with her. But it's all basically a part of a a scheme. Like she's basically luring him in. And then I think she just kills mostly Green Lanterns, if not all Green Lanterns that she comes across essentially. And since he's the last one, I think she's kind of like, okay, this is the end of my mission. And so she becomes very, very obsessed. But that's a very hazy memory. So if I have any of that wrong and anyone's watching this that's, that remembers differently, I apologize. <laughs> well, what's interesting, because the way you're describing it and just the look of the character they pulled here from the comics, I'm like, oh, she's Angela, but she's, you know, African-American. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's, yeah. that's the look that you get. So you get a great African-American actress. You get Angela Bassett, who they were yeah. just casting as, you know, Storm. That was like the rumor at the time. And mm-hmm. I wish she had gotten the role. So I think that's <laughs> awesome. But I just, I love that idea because I want to talk to Ron Mars again now and be like hey so was this character just a riff on Angela you're like she's killing all the spawns and you have you know this gal who's coming around to kill all the green lanterns like that that's just fantastic I love that concept now I want to find those stories with her (laughs) sounds neat well that does it for this casting call but man you were the right one for the job that is for sure some great picks there in this day and age do you feel like they'll ever do Kyle Rayner you know we just got Ben Riley spider-man in across the spider-verse you know so do you think that's ever going to happen no i think that in today's world especially with the justice league cartoon having such a big place in a lot of people's imagination regarding the character i think john stewart is the i mean the fact that they're doing hal jordan and john stewart in the new tv show i guess that's planned for max yeah and if they went down a movie it would be john stewart it would add diversity to the universe as well and hal jordan is a is a i, I love the character but i think that there's a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in that and and I think the whole idea of like a test pilot isn't as you know that's it's definitely from a bygone era so I think you could do much more interesting stuff with Jon Stewart now but um 
Kyle, he's just for us kids from the 90s, he's still our Green Lantern, but I don't think he'll ever. But actually, there's kind of a great aspect to that because he'll always just kind of be what he was. They're never going to, I don't think they'll ever take the character in a lot of directions that you don't, you know, recognize or don't want them to as a fan of him. All right. Well, Lee, this has been super fun. And just to tease everybody here out, we have mentioned that one of our upcoming episodes is going to be a Batman special that we are covering, and you're going to be part of the panel for that. Mm-hmm. So we will be talking to you again soon. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Well, that was fun hearing about Wizard's Silver Screen dreams, but now let's check out their thoughts on the current crop of comics in The Skinny. Yes, indeed. These are the comic book reviews from Wizard editors Brian Cunningham, Andrew Carden, and Tom R. Root. So interesting here that they're identifying themselves now so you know whose opinions you're hearing. So the first book they're talking about is X Factor the shallow end of the mutant gene pool. So this is a time when the creative team was Howard Mackey and Jeff Matsuda and Art T-Bear and various fill-in artists, as they say. Well, you need to know. Formerly the government-sanctioned band of superpowered mutants, X-Factor faked its demise to escape Uncle Sam's watchful eye. Now the rogue team of Forge, Mystique, Polaris, Wildchild, Guy, and Shard is setting its own agenda. The good. And this is very short. Veteran X characters manage some dramatic moments. When reluctant one-time team member Sabretooth finally tore off his restraining collar to stalk his captors in issue number 136, the sense of dread was well handled. And Mystique's political behind-the-scenes scheming stands out. The bad. Which is a lot. This book is lost. No longer a government super team, X-Factor has no purpose, no mission, no goal, no direction. And it shows. The book is a swap of endless stop-and-start plots, spinning lazily without resolution. There's never a payoff with no side one will ever arrive. For instance, the romance between Forge and Mystique unfolding for what seems like forever is so dreadfully hesitant it might as well not exist. Wildchild's flirtatious friendship with Shard has stalled, sputtered, and downright stopped. This is a book that shifts into cruise control until the next X crossover. Compounding the problem, particularly for newer readers, is the utter lack of explanation when past storylines drag through the title. For example, exactly who is that boy Mystique visits in disguise? Does he have any connection? connection to the senator Mystique is duped into believing she's his wife? Why is Havoc a bad guy? Why is Madrox the multiple man not returning to the team? The directionless storylines are joined by a roster of unfulfilling and half-baked characters whose potential is barely tapped. Shard is yet another displaced futuristic mutant who's really a holographic projection searching for... something? We're never told her purpose in all seven issues we reviewed. Wildchild is merely a watered-down Sabretooth Jr. and a ninny to boot. <laughs> a ninny. When Mystique pointlessly toys with his emotions at number 136, you don't even feel for the dope. And what makes the cast all the blander is dull, monotonous dialogue. There's nothing distinguishing the personalities of Polaris from Shard from Forge. The buzz, insiders at Marvel have hinted that this book, like its mutant sibling Excalibur, will get cancelled before much longer. The skinny, and we wouldn't shed any tears. X-Factor is all frivolous filler awaiting the next mutant crossover, further watering down Marvel's stable of X-Titles. With its current non-direction, there is absolutely no good reason for this book to exist. The verdict? One. It is pure crapola. Wow. So, first of all, just that roster, I'm just like, man, I mean, those are all, like, C-list X-Men, you know? Maybe Mystique, you could say, is B-list, but I feel like her star didn't even really rise until the movies came out, you know? So that's kind of like, ah. It does sound to me like Marvel was really coasting for as long as they could, right? Off of Jim Lee launching X-Men, selling 8 million copies, and they're like, okay, we're hanging on to these fans, we're hanging on to these fans, and just like, little by little, they've lost all the top talent as far as artists and everybody, and it's just like, you still buy it, right? You still buy all the X-Men books? No? Ah, so yeah. Very interesting. Good to know that Peter David's reboot was just around the corner, though. Next up here, Wonder Woman says, is this Amazon burned out? Get it? This is all John Byrne writing and drawing everything. Says, what you need to know. Growing up on the paradise island of Themyscira, Princess Diana was chosen to represent the Amazons as Wonder Woman and spread peace throughout man's world. She recently died, was resurrected by the Greek gods, and transformed into a goddess while her mother, Hippolyta, has taken up the role of Wonder Woman on Earth. The good. Diana is an honorable heroine who walks tall, commands respect, and has deep passion for helping others. 
others. She even kept this characteristic when she became a goddess, defying Athena's orders to not intercede when she saved three humans' lives. When the JLA showed up at Diana's bedside, all the characters were handled beautifully. The rookie Green Lantern expressed his helplessness. Superman acted like a concerned big brother, and even though Batman didn't say a word, you could feel his heartache. There's a strong Greek mythological feel to this book. It's impossible to forget that the gods are heavily involved in Wonder Woman's life. Now, I do think it's interesting that one where they talk about the bedside, because we picked up that particular issue because I had a wizard staffer, Mark Wolkowski, drawn in, which we were able to bring up recently. The bad. This book is just really boring. Besides being unnecessarily wordy, check out the verbose word balloons on page 10 of number 122, the storyline doesn't go anywhere quickly enough to keep our interest. The only main thread is Diana's transcendence to goddesshood, but it takes too long to get there. And there's tons of tangents along the way, including Etrigan the Demon's interference, Artemis's attempt to kill Etrigan, and Dr. Zool's mind transference experiments. Adding to the runaround is a supporting cast that's so huge, we count over a dozen, you need a scorecard to keep track. And that's not even counting all the Greek gods. And what a terrible supporting cast it is! The teenage Cassie, aka the new Wonder Girl, is whiny, and becomes even more annoying when Zeus gives her superpowers on a whim. Jason Blood, aka Etrigan, and his associates seem out of place in the storyline, and there's people like Helena Sandsmark, Vanessa, and Julia Capitellus. Besides not caring about these flat characters, you have no idea who they are and how they support Wonder Woman. The art itself is sketchy, with characters' faces oftentimes too similar. It's hard to tell them apart. On page one of number 126, in fact, the female professor Capitellus actually looks like a man. And while the backgrounds are mostly pretty detailed, the artist only does backgrounds about half the time. The buzz. Since Wonder Woman's involvement in JLA and her death resurrection, fans have been taking note of this book. The skinny, given John Byrne's legendary body of work, the expectations of any book he touches are unfairly high. But in these nine issues of Wonder Woman, he failed to deliver with a plodding storyline, way too many side characters, an enormous amount of text, and sketchy art. The verdict? A two. Ugh. But yes, I've always heard that this run of John Byrne doing Wonder Woman just wasn't up to snuff. Maybe too ambitious, had too much going on, so it sounds like Wizard caught on to that as well. Now let's check out this next one though because this is a book that they promote quite a bit and feature its creator in many interviews, Strangers in Paradise, and they say, no trouble in this paradise. So this of course is by Terry Moore. What you need to know. Best friends Kachu and Francine love each other very much. Heck, they might even decide they're in love if life would stop chucking curveballs at them, but there's always someone coming between them, whether it's the dishonest but wishy-washy dope David or Kachu's old employer from her dark past, billionaire call girl Madam Darcy Parker. The good? The book sails on the strength of its unique, realistic characters. Kachu and Francine deeply resonate as multifaceted, fleshed-out characters expressing the same thoughts and fears you yourself might have. It's all thanks to solid writing and often brilliant dialogue. We'd go so far as to say that Francine in particular is the best written female character in comics. At its best, the book's characters are like your closest friends, making it a joy to visit them issue to issue. The interplay between cast members is easy and natural. Even seemingly mundane interactions, such as Kachu's pep talk as Francine heads to a job interview in issue number two, is fresh and engaging. They're like real people you just can't get enough of. The plot unfolds evenly, with steadily building suspense, leaving you wanting more. Moore knows how to end an issue, whether it's silly, Francine locked in a closet at the end of issue number four, or shocking, Kachu's plummet to certain doom as number eight closes, which only makes the wait for next issue all the more unbearable. The expressive art complements the dynamic dialogue perfectly. It's cartoony and realistic all at the same time, capturing each mood and nuance demanded of characters this rich. This is sequential storytelling at its finest. The bad. With any landscape this beautiful, there's a tendency to want to mine it again and again. The crime plot of this third series rehashes that of early issues, revisiting similar scenarios and characters that have already had the spotlight. The evil Darcy Parker is back, but weren't we finished with her a long time ago? Kachu flipping out in a screaming fit was powerful the first few times, but her character loses our sympathy with each new grating tantrum. And the only reason the whiny, repetitive David is even in this series anymore, it seems, is to reunite and break up with Kachu at nauseam. And while the art channels personality with near perfection, sometimes different characters can appear quite similar, especially in the current black and white format. It's an unwanted distraction. The buzz, more is self-publishing again, and on a regular schedule. Let's hope a proposed animated series for HBO does nothing to distract him from the comics. The skinny Strangers in Paradise tells some of the best written, most interesting stories in comics, and fantastically realized characters. Despite 
treading familiar territory, Moore still manages to keep the readers guessing. The verdict of five. Excellent. So that's the highest rated book of the issue. Pretty interesting to see where they're at in terms of these, I guess you would call them old stalwarts, you know, with X Factor and Wonder Woman, but just not quite cutting it after a while. Hey geeks, it's time to take a break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Manscaped. Smooth sack summer is drawn to a close, and that means now is the time to keep your balls cool while still looking hot with Manscaped. Just go to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with our code WIZARDS20. You know, there's a lot of ball-related heroes in comics. Speedball, that bizarre Marvel Comics villain 8-Ball, the fast ball special from X-Men Comics, but the most important balls are yours, and that's why you need the power of the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. It has everything you need to prepare that summer bod. Manscaped has built the ultimate grooming bundle that includes their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, which features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunction on-off switch, it can engage a travel lock, and gives you the ability to turn the 4,000 Kelvin LED spot spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. Gotta see what's going on down there after all. It's also waterproof with a blade that can shear through even the strongest pubes with the precision of Wolverine's adamantium claws. But after you're looking good, you want to feel good by using the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant to stay cool in the heat. Its soothing aloe vera formula is the best in the business for below-the-waist freshness, and this clear-drying formula will keep you looking good while smelling good. The Manscaped Performance Package 4.0 also includes includes two free gifts, the Manscaped boxers and the Shed travel bag. While it's still warm enough to rock those sandals, you'll also want to use the Shears 2.0, a luxury nail grooming kit to keep your nails looking great. This kit includes stainless steel nail cutters, tweezers, and grooming scissors. With the Performance Package 4.0, your balls will be ready to impress, but make sure you cover the rest with the Shears 2.0. So what are you waiting for, geeks? Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20 percent off plus free shipping with the code wizards20 at manscaped.com have a ball being a grooming hero this summer and looking your best with manscaped hey geeks looking for something different than another reality shattering crossover from the big two do you want a self-contained sci-fi thriller with a dash of superpowered excitement then above the grave a graphic novel by mitchell hall and andrew de silva should be at the top of your reading pile and it's available to download now on amazon.com here's what above the grave is all about. In Mako, the supervillain prison of the world, located underground in the Nambian desert, no one finds redemption. Or can they? Follow the adventures of new warden Rick Mastertine as he deals with a prison break by rogues such as shape-shifting Mr. Twister, luck-manipulating Russian roulette, sentient lethal banyan tree Divine, and brilliant chimera Crocitus. Rick must also discover the true secret of Mako and come to terms with his own personal history while dealing with an action-packed supervillain prison break. Above the Grave is a 136-page graphic novel that's more than just another superhero smackdown book. I read it, and frankly, I couldn't put it down. The reveal of what's going on in Mako and the secret plans of the superpowered inmates are perfectly paced by Hall for maximum intrigue. The black and white art by De Silva is cinematic in scope and perfectly complemented by sharp dialogue from engaging characters, and it really reminded me of the 80s black and white adventure comic just those indie books from First Comics and Eclipse Comics. It's a story with a more sophisticated edge, but it puts entertainment first. So head on over to Amazon.com to grab your copy of Above the Grave today. You can check our show notes for a link, but strap in for a unique and thrilling adventure in graphic storytelling with Above the Grave. Now back to the show. All right, well, let's check out what's going on in the world of the rankings with our top 10 comics list. So I kind of avoided this last mini episode because it looked like it was the same books over and over again. And that does seem to be the case, but there's a little bit of variety mixed in. So these are the top 10 back issues for January 1998. 
And at the top of the heap is JLA number one. Einstein, Isaac Newton, Don Knotts, or one of them great minds of history said, what goes up must come down. The comic book corollary to this axiom, yep, we're talking genius, so we're using big words, is seen this month with JLA number one. Last month, little brother JLA number two was in the leadoff hole because of its relative scarcity. This month, buyers are a bit more traditional, and the more traditional number one is in greater demand. So last month was only a test of the emergency comic broadcast system. If it had been an actual emergency, you would have been instructed that DC was actually silly enough to turn Superman all blue and glowy. <laughs> so last month, JLA number one was number three, so that's interesting. But which blade gets the silver medal this month? Things you could count on in life. Death, taxes, various members of the Dallas Cowboys getting arrested, the fact that all underwear except those nice comfy thongs will bunch up in your butt crack, and yes, the fact that Witchblade number one appears on this list. Witchy Poo's debut issue has been on the list for, no lie, 19 consecutive months. We're ready to retire the book and carve Sarah Pazzini's mug on Mount Rushmore, but only if nifty swell Witchblade artist Michael Turner does the sculpting. We're ready to plaster her face on the new dollar coin already. We're ready to sing her name from the mountaintops already. We're ready to move on to number three already. <laughs> so JLA number two now is the bronze winner. Holy jumpin' kryptonite. DC did turn Superman all blue and glowy. Then they split him in two and made him all blue and glowy and all red and glowy. And who knows what they're gonna put him through in 1998. Fortunately, JLA number two comes from a simpler day, a day when the clouds were puffy, bunny rabbits were fluffy, and Superman didn't look like a giant electric smurf. That's a small part of the reason why it's on this list. A larger part is, well, the simple fact that people just dig darn near anything with a JLA logo on it these days, and that's sure to continue through this year. Number four is Heroes Reborn The Return, number one. Did you ever count how many guys are credited with the story concept creation in the mega popular Heroes Reborn The Return, number one? No? Well, we did. There's 19 of them. Now, if Marvel's standard royalty payment is in effect, probable. And if we remember the eighth grade algebra, doubtful. That means each guy got 84 cents for his troubles. So what's contributor and Deadpool writer Joe Kelly gonna buy with his share of the loot? Quote, Team America number seven, the last issue I need to fill in my run he says. Well, we guess there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> number five is Uncanny X-Men number 350. Well, golly, looky here, looky here, looky here. Magneto's back in town and he's nastier than ever, which makes us collectively guess just who the hell is Joseph anyway. For the last couple of years or so, we thought Joseph was Magneto, but Uncanny X-Men number 350 shows us that he's not. In true fashion, this issue has opened up a huge can of worms. Yuck, what a disgusting con Concept. That's got everyone guessing. Guess that's why every flat scan worth his jeans wants to scarf one of these up. Not to mention the huge gambit revelation. So I don't know why I turned into an old-timey prospector there. It just felt like that's how they were writing it. But last month, it wasn't even on the list, and now it's number five. But another standby here, the sixth spot. In the number six spot is The Darkness number one. The Darkness is, well, dark, but it's published by Top Cow Productions. If you can buy dark and cow, you get chocolate milk. Now that's nice. No dark, ugly stuff there. Nope, chocolate milk is both tasty and rich in calcium, which gives us strong bones and teeth. See, it's nice, happy stuff now. Except that those strong bones you will develop will be broken by Darkness bearer Jackie Estacado as part of his nine to five duties as a mob hitman. Kind of neat how we come full circle in a mere 93 words, huh? Huh? Number seven is a new cover to the list that I'm super excited about. Kiss the Psycho Circus number one. Boy, here's a stretch. Take world-famous rockers Kiss and put them in goofy costumes, like those they already wear. Send them out on a traveling circus-like roadshow, like they already do, and make a comic. Hey, it's a hit! Gee, imagine our surprise. Images Kiss the Psycho Circus is what we like to call the unscrewable pooch. There's no way it couldn't have clicked. With millions of slobbering kissophiles waiting to plunk down hard-earned cash for anything covered in black and white grease paint. It was a smash waiting to happen. Now, I don't know if that's true. Like, Kiss had just had the most successful tour of the year with their reunion tour, and now they were on their Psycho Circus tour. Well, they were gearing up, I should say, for their Psycho Circus tour, because that album came out in 1998. This is the beginning of 1998. So, huh. I didn't realize the comic predated the album. I would have thought they would have arrived simultaneously, but 
Either way, they're not lying about being a KISS fanatic and spending all your money. Literally at this time, that was all I did. So I would go to a music store, I'd go to Circuit City or whatever, and I'd be buying KISS albums, import KISS albums, remastered KISS albums. Like, and then I would go and buy the comic book, and then I would go buy the action figures. Like, I was all in on KISS. Any magazine they appeared in, it was crazy. And I will tell you, coming up in a few months, KISS makes the cover of Wizard, and we are bringing on a fellow KISS fan who's, I booked him like a year ago. I said, when we get to this issue, you're coming on, we're going to talk KISS. So keep an eye out for that. But let's get to the rest of the list here. Number eight is Dark Child. In addition to being tough as nails for a little 17-year-old girly, we gotta give Ariel Child credit for one thing. Great hair. Think about it. She spends half her time running through the woods evading her abusive father and assorted demons from hell. But her long, silky locks always maintain that shimmer and bounce. Trust us, many a heavy metal musician, like the Kiss folks down there, could take a hair care lesson from her. Wonder what kind of conditioner she uses? We also wonder when the next damn issue's coming out. Oh, so Randy Queen was having a little bit of trouble getting the uh, release schedule nailed down. That's interesting. Is that what led to its lack of popularity ultimately? Hmm. All right, number nine is Mage. Kevin Matchstick, the man on this cover to our left, has the coolest superhero-y gadget of all. A magic baseball bat charged with the power of King Arthur's sword, Excalibur. Think about it. He's got 33 inches of Tennessee ash crafted into a Louisville slugger that he can use to knock teeth out of bad guys' skulls, lead the American League in homers, and it even glows in the dark. The new Mage series is going great guns, and Kevin's solo adventure started here in this 1984 Comico series. So another one that wasn't even on the list, but here it is an old back issue, which again, it would feel like they wouldn't be as current to back issues as are always on this list, right? Doesn't it feel like people would be digging deeper and deeper, but I don't know how the business works. I just read them. Finally, number 10 is Thunderbolts number one. Make no mistake, we think Thunderbolts is cooler than a mint julep in the shade, but that name, Thunderbolts. It's so damn cheeseball. It sounds like a lame-ass Mattel toy line from 1975. Can't you just hear whiny twerps with bad Gerald Ford era haircut saying, Mommy, I want a Thunderbolt for Christmas. Sheesh. But maybe that cheeseball unassuming name helps set us up for the big surprise. The Thunderbolts are the masters of evil in disguise. Hey, the concept worked. And if the name helped, more power to ya. So there was our list of the top 10 comics. I'm glad there's some variety here and a lot of them unexpected. I'm very curious to see if the Psycho Circus comics stay on this list going forward in any way, because I was reading them, but I really thought I was one of the few. I didn't think they were a big hit, but the series lasted for a couple of years, so I guess, you know, there was more fervor than I thought. I had more Kiss Army soldiers out there buying the same stuff, so, all right. Well, we talked about the top 10 comics, but now we gotta get into our top 10 heroes and villains. Alright, not much has changed here, however. Let's get into it. Wolverine is number one, as he always seems to be. Yeah! It's the Wolverine from beyond! He's got that glazed-over pupils little orphan Annie possessed like Linda Blair look in his eyes! He's bent on destruction, has no concept of hair care, and he's still about the most popular comic book guy to come down the pike since forever! Hey fans, dig will use Wolverine art? They super dug the Warren Ellis scripted Not Dead Yet Wolby storyline, and they've always gone for the outcast loner tough-ass persona that is our fuzzy pal Logan. Now, if only Wolvie would buy a comb, maybe he'd get a date this Saturday and become popular with the ladies. I will just say, we were posting in social media the 8 to the 4 from this issue, and Lionel Francis Yu sent a big shout-out to Wizard for really supporting him in the early days, and he actually mentioned that they paid top dollar for the covers, so he does the cover for issue 80 coming up next, so. Alright, number 2 is Spawn. Nice teeth. Not a feeling to be seen. The rumors are true. Spawn flosses regularly. You ever sit on a really cold toilet seat? A really, really cold toilet seat? Looks like that's what happened to old Spawny guy here, but you think with all the dough Spawn brings in from the comics, movies, TV shows, toys, and new upcoming Spawn super elastic bubble plastic, he could afford some sort of bourgeois luxury device that would keep the old porcelain throne heated to a consistent 72 degrees Fahrenheit. Or maybe, much like Wolverine, 
doesn't care about his hair. Spawn doesn't care about his butt cheeks. It's a possibility. Number three is Witchblade. Speaking of butt cheeks, welcome to the Witchblade segment of our countdown. Boy, that Sarah Fazzini's got one nice looking kaboo. gonna do it last time we harped on female body parts in this column we got slapped around by the amalgamated feminists of america or some such organization instead we'll talk about the wonderful glowy warm suntan sarah seems to be sporting here wonder what she uses to get that look some sort of nice copper tone cocoa butter concoction perhaps whatever it is it works sarah our generation's witchblade wearer is a pretty girl in a pretty good comic so your average fan on the street digs her mucho wow look at that showing their constraints I would love to know if they actually did get some sort of response. They know what they were doing was not right. At least they got us to recall that damage control siren. All right, number four is Deadpool. Deadpool looks a little confused to be this high up on the list, so we'll explain the deal in nice little words so that everyone can understand. Deadpool is fun. He's a goof. His trap is flapping a mile a minute and he's got nothing but goofy things to say. He's got a killer supporting cast, and speaking of killer, Deadpool is one. He's a mercenary hitman who goes around blowing people's heads off and somehow makes you laugh at it. Now, if only Marvel Comics could eject that kind of sense of humor into, oh, we don't know, maybe Spider-Man? We'd be getting somewhere. So Deadpool rising in the ranks. Number five is The Darkness. Speaking of butt cheeks, boy, that Jackie Estacado's got one nice looking ass. Okay, we're done with providing equal time to both genders. On to description. Estacado, the guy who carries the Darkness Force, is another hitman type, although he's considerably less funny than Deadpool. What makes him so darn popular? Well, his power is connected to the Witchblade, so you get a nice crossover effect there. And for the moment being, at least, he's drawn by Mark Silvestri. That's a tough combo to beat. Now, number six is Batman. Face it, Batman equals cool. In Bat Garb, the Dark Knight detective is the tough guy, cool as cucumber, kick any ass I want, and I got cool gadgets to boot hero. And as Bruce Wayne, he's the suave, cool as cucumber, I could bag any Hollywood star that I want, and I got a Ferrari to boot playboy. Not a bad life, beats the hell out of say. Being a low-grade editor of a marginally successful comic book magazine. <laughs> a number seven, Hulk. Ah, Hulk having eccentric headache number 82. Why not puny human just give Hulk aspirin? Hey, we'd give Greenskin anything he wants and throw in a bag of chips just to make him double happy. But if Hulk is the strongest one there is, and he is, what could give this massive engine of gamma-powered destruction a headache? Surely not any of the nasty villains he faces. Surely not the beautiful pencils of Adam Kubert that graces book. As usual, we'll just blame the French. There it is. Number eight is Baron Zemo. Speaking of butt cheeks, boy, does Baron Zemo's face look like a big slice of ass pie. What happened to his face? Did it catch fire and someone had to beat it out with the size 16 football cleat? Ugly kisser aside, Zemo is quickly becoming Marvel's most successful villain. He's hoodwinked everyone, for nine and a half issues at least, into believing that he and the Masters of Evil disguises the Thunderbolts were actually good guys. Just goes to show, a pretty face ain't everything. Number nine is Captain America. On the flip side of Zemo, you got his traditional arch nemesis Captain America. While Zemo is the poster child for evil, dishonesty, and yucky lima beans, Cap is the ultimate champion of goodness, truth, and yes, yummy apple pie. Cap's the man you can always count on to watch your back in a fight, and as an added bonus, judging from the dramatic Gil Kane-esque low angle shot, he does a good job of trimming his nose hairs too. Now finally, number 10 is Savage Dragon. Don't get us wrong, we love Dragon, and a hardcore group of dedicated followers love Dragon even more than we do, but we kind of feel sorry for the big green lug. After all, his girlfriend got shot right before his eyes, he routinely gets his arms pulled off his body, and he got to talk to God once, God for crying out loud, but couldn't get any answers to them. Great ponderable God questions. Tough life. At least he's got a cool fin on his head. Now, I feel like we've sort of been poking fun at Savage Dragon lately. We're not making fun of the character. We just feel like if you're a fan of Savage Dragon, what are you doing to beat the drum? What are you doing to wave the flag? It just feels like Savage Dragon's fans are not out there like telling everybody you gotta buy this book but maybe that's the way they like it maybe you guys like to be you know those stalwarts they're like oh i know savage dragon i've been reading it since the beginning all the way up to issue 300 you know maybe that's just kind of how you like to operate i don't know but it just seems strange to me i'd never hear anybody say savage dragon is great but maybe the fans just take that as a given so there's no defense of the character needed all right well now we're gonna meet our mort of the month
So this month's sport is Dr. Spectro. Hey, looks like drunk Uncle Bob got tangled in the Christmas tree lights again. No, it's worse. It's Dr. Spectro. A villain's so freaking dumb, he's tied to wizard number 57's board of the month, Rainbow Raider. Tom Emery was an assistant to the man who developed the lame-ass hallucination-inducing technology that powered the Rainbow Raider. A reporter accused Emery of being Dr. Spectro, a mythical villain who never existed. Emery figured, hmm, what the hell, I'll give it a shot, and used pirated Rainbow Raider technology, Mort certified, to whip up his own stupid suit just in time to get his ass handed to him by DC's Captain Adam. Stupid. Well, now I know. See, you've done it. You've heard my pleas for all these issues. Thank you, Wizard, for telling us who he actually battled. But so interesting. Stole another supervillain's costuming technology and, and did his own deal. Pretty, pretty interesting. Mortometer, not quite maxed out here where you still have two empty spots. But Dr. Spectro, so be it. All right, well, let's close this thing out. As always, want to thank you for joining me for this edition of Wizards Half. Of course, big thanks to Lee for coming in on that casting call. Man, that was a really fun discussion. I would love to see that movie now. But I would also love to see you connected with us on social media. We are currently on X at Wizards Comics on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. Find us on Facebook at Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Of course, go on over to the YouTube channel. Why? Well, as I said, the superhero fantasy draft is up. It's a ton of fun. We have some surprises for you in there as well. Little extra flair we've added to the proceedings. So be sure to go on over to YouTube and enjoy the games, as they say. Of course, uh, you want to know what to look forward to, right? What are you going to find coming up on the next edition of Wizards? Well, uh, issue number 80, we had William Bibiano on to discuss that with us from the critically acclaimed network fantastic conversation but there is a fully uncut version of that that is on our patreon patreon.com forward slash wizards comics but that's not all you also get a scan of the issue you get access to behind the scenes looks at what's going to be coming up in various haul videos new additions to the archives before anybody else you get access to our discord server so you can have your own private conversations about 90s comics going on over there and and 90s Super Cinema. Yes, next we are going to be talking about Blade. So if you love that Wesley Snipes film, uh, get ready for our thoughts on that. Of course, want to also tell you that another event that's coming up soon is our Batman special. Wizard had a Batman special issue in 1998. And joining us for that will be Lee, as we mentioned earlier, but also Scott Beatty. That's right. Former Wizard alumni, Toy Fair editor Scott Beatty, who went on to write many adventures of Nightwing and Batgirl and so on and so forth at DC. So he is going to be there as our resident expert. So something super exciting for you all to look forward to. But hey, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.